going to get started and introduce our panelists to all of you. Uh, on my left, we have State Representative Myra Crownover. She's the Vice Chairwoman of the House Energy Resources Committee, a Republican from Denton. She has represented District 64 in the Texas House since 2000. Um, Luke Metzger, to her left, is the Director of Environment Texas. He's the Founder and Director of Environment Texas, a statewide organization advocating for clean air, water, and open spaces. Laura Miller, Director of Texas Projects at Summer Power Group. Um, she's also a former uh, uh, mayor of Dallas, where she advocated for coal gasification, carbon sequestration, and energy efficiency. She's also served on the Dallas City Council. Uh, chairman Brian Shaw, Chairman of the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Uh, he was appointed to the TCEQ in 2009 by Governor Rick Perry, and he's also served as Chairman of the Texas Advisory Panel on Federal Environmental Regulations. Um, he's also an Associate Professor of Biological and Agriculture Engineering at Texas A&M University. Dr. Jennifer Vanoss is an Assistant Professor of Atmospheric Science at Texas Tech University. She studies the impacts of weather and climate on humans, and she works with the U.S. Interior Department's South Central Climate Science Center, focusing largely on adapting to the changing climate. So I uh, really want to thank all of you for being here today. And I want to start out with a very general question, just so we all know where you're coming from on this issue. What, is, what does the title of this panel mean to you? What does Texas versus EPA mean to you? What comes to mind when you hear that? Let's start with you, Vinny. Well, what comes to mind is it shouldn't be Texas versus the EPA or the EPA versus Texas. Um, the EPA is supposed to be working for us. They are uh, not elected officials, and um, they are, we are supposed to have the same goals. Um, I, one time I was on a panel with Mark Strama, and we were arguing back and forth about the merits of something. And uh, finally, I came up kind of with the summation that, that you know, everyone wants a cleaner, better world for our children and grandchildren. We want cleaner air, cleaner water for our children and grandchildren. But really what we were doing that day, I said, I think here we're dickering about the price. So a lot of these conversations are dickering about the price. Um, we have the same goals, and um, we need to make sure that it is uh, a worthy goal and that the cost is not more than it should be. Yeah, I think the title would um, better be characterized as Texas politicians versus the EPA. And I think Texans, uh, Texans want, as, as the representative said, cleaner air, cleaner water. And in fact, they're willing to you know, make an investment in making that possible. You know, a, a poll by Stanford University found that most Texans think that uh, the EPA should regulate carbon pollution, you know, which of course is one of the big debates of the day. So I think you know Texans want it, um, but unfortunately we still have you know this litigation you know, uh, pushed by the Attorney General and TCEQ, which I think is largely you know driven by ideology. It you know uh, denies basic widely held science. It puts the interests of big polluters ahead of the health of our families, um, and it's just uh, has a terrible track record. And we spend a lot of money uh, for not much gain. Um, so uh, I, I hope that you know. Uh, now that, you know, for example, Supreme Court's ruled three times, um, you know, uh, upholding uh, the EPA's authority in this area, that rather than continue the obstructionism, we'll, we'll start cooperating and, and finding a, a solution that works for Texas. Laura. 
No, I do think that the image of Texas outside Texas is very much Texas versus EPA, as though there's just a stalemate and there's no way to move forward. But if you're inside Texas, and, and as a former mayor and someone that's worked with the legislature, I've worked with Representative Cronover for the last six years, specifically on carbon capture and storage and enhanced oil recovery. And even though Texas is the largest CO2 emitter in the country by far, it would be the seventh largest country in the world as far as CO2 emissions if we were our own country, which everyone thinks we are anyway. Um, but despite that, you know, it's, it's interesting. You talked about politicians and ideology, and, and I think, it's, I think a, what people miss is that, for example, Representative Cronover and I have never had a, a long, detailed conversation about global warming or climate change, but yet we've traveled to China together to look at carbon capture and storage and coal gasification and how to get emissions down with coal. And she is the leading expert in the legislature right now on all of those issues. And she has championed legislation to give financial incentives to to uh, fossil fuel power plants that capture their carbon. And so I, I, I think that there is so much opportunity in Texas for people to get to the same goal, even though they may be getting to that goal by entirely different philosophical means. I think the Texas versus EPA, much as, as Representative Crowner pointed out, is, is not the goal. It's not the way the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and way good <coughs> regulation and a good regulatory environment functions. Uh, the Congress had the good sense to create something we call cooperative federalism, which is the model where the federal government would set certain standards, but then default largely to the states to determine how to meet those standards. And we're seeing a push away from that, and to the extent it appears that most of the, of the Texas versus EPA that people notice, I would argue is less about the politics than it is about the science and what science we're going to demand be utilized to make sure that the environmental regulations and environmental policies we have actually lead to environmental gains. Uh, as an example, there's a lot of issue about the process that EPA is using to continue to lower the ozone standard. I have great concerns that the process we're using is something that our kids and grandkids are going to say, why did y'all continue to assume ozone is the primary problem in this, and it's every five years you lower the standard, and instead of actually getting better, we see cases of asthma going up, even though air pollution has been improving dramatically over years. Uh, I think it's time that we say that EPA needs to do the hard lifting, the heavy lifting, do the robust science to be able to understand why people continue to have respiratory challenges because the approach we've been using isn't fixing the problem. And there's lots of scientific data, there's lots of uh, clinical data as well as anecdotal data that shows, for example, in Texas, we have more asthmatic uh, uh, admissions in the hospitals in the wintertime when our ozone is lower than in the summertime during ozone season. We know that we don't see the response to ozone in asthmatics. They assume it's the same as, as non-asthmatics, and we don't see response in non-asthmatics when you expose them unless it's to very rigorous ex exercise for very long time periods of time, and that doesn't mimic well with what we're exposed to in, in the, in the uh, outdoor environment, and I think that's the key, is we need to focus on following the science wherever it leads us because it looks like perhaps we need to be looking at indoor environments because we spend about 90% of our time indoors. In fact, we look at people dying. We know that they tend to, when someone gets sick, we don't send them outside, we put them indoors. And, so, and yet the process that we have with the epidemiological studies is someone dies, we assume that they've been exposed to the highest concentrations of ozone near the hospital, not where they live. And so we're basically missing an opportunity to really make a difference on the health and environment of the state and the country if we don't decide it's time to really follow science wherever it leads.
Well, luckily we have an expert on air pollution and health impacts on the panel, Dr. Pong. Yes, thank you. So, yeah, this, this um, panel is really exciting for me, and I think there's a lot to be gained from um, learning what is needed um, from scientists. So I am an, uh, a scientist. I look at air quality. I look at the environmental health impacts of heat and air pollution on humans. And hearing kind of what is needed, um, this panel gives me the opportunity to actually hear what, um, what uh, Texas needs to know. And also, I think it provides a forum for the EPA to um, understand what is also needed to be able to set these standards. And a lot of what's been said so far already is, is really enlightening and, and very true in that um, we actually don't have the exposure monitoring available to be able to know um, what people are exposed to all the time. And with only a few monitors um, in one city within Texas, how are we supposed to do that science to be able to give you those values and give you those thresholds? And um, that's something that I know the EPA is looking a lot more into um, with some of their funding solicitations um, and that I'm also very interested in seeing um, more of the who's being exposed, what are they being exposed to, um, why are they being exposed, and what can we do about it. Um, so I think that um, when it comes down to it, we all have the same goal in mind of um, maintaining vibrant health and well-being, whether it be well-being financially, um, health-wise, with the entire environment in mind in urban areas or rural areas. I think we all have the same goal in that respect. It's just how do we go about it properly to get the, the accurate science that we can really say this is, this is what it means, I think. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what it means to me right now. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, Chairman Shaw, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned, which sure. it, it sounded like you were saying that some of these debates with the EPA or with their, with their policies are about, not about the science, about the underlying science. Is that, is that correct? Did I characterize that correctly? Uh, sure, a lot of them are. I mean, there are some that are, that are legal and or policy-oriented as well, but certainly a number, and I gave the example of, of ozone, which is one of the, the huge issues we're dealing with, and EPA is posed to to lower that standard again soon, and so it's one that's fresh on my mind. It's one, in fact, we're convening a workshop early next year to look at a creative and innovative way to actually look at the impacts of exposure and what the data tells us to, to propose and, and to hopefully develop a new methodology to develop a process that would set standards based on what the impacts would be to humans' health, as opposed to looking at epi studies, which are good for certain purposes, but are really limited in being able to determine what a, a, a healthy threshold is for ozone standard. So, Dr. Vanessa, I'm kind of, can, can you give us a sense of what do we really know about the science right now, you know, when it comes to the ozone standard? And then I'd love for everyone else to jump in. We've got two elected officials here from areas that are obviously not in attainment for ozone, and I'd be curious to see what you think, too. Well, ozone is an um, interesting pollutant in that it's a secondary pollutant, so we don't actually emit ozone through industry or through our cars. It's actually formed afterwards, um, whereas a lot of the primary pollutants that the EPA deals with are emitted um, by people. And so ozone is a, a more difficult one to deal <coughs> with, and something that um, studies have attempted to look at is the interactive effect. So if you're exposed to ozone at the same time as NOx, at the same time as SOx, at the same time as particulate matter less than 2.5, what is actually causing um, people to become ill? And it's hard to expose someone to just ozone. And ozone is formed, and then it breaks down, and then it's formed again, and we know it follows um, uh, patterns with the weather 
um, better than any of the other pollutants that we see. Um, so it is a really hard one to make standards for, and it is focused on a lot, and it's one of the toughest ones to understand because of all of this. Um, PM 2.5, on the other hand, that actually gets into our lungs because they're such small particles, um, we actually can emit that from our cars, um, from industry. And so that's actually an easier one to um, get specific studies done on. But the other thing I wanted to bring up was that when we're setting these standards, setting a standard for a child is much different than setting a standard, standard for an, a healthy adult, and that's also much different than setting a standard for the elderly. And so something that I think is needed is differential thresholds for the population because um, people respond very differently. And you brought up the um, fact that exercising, we have a much higher breathing rate when we exercise. And if people can't exercise outdoors and can't have that healthy environment to exercise in, then that's impacting our health as well. Or there might be the people that go and exercise anyways, no matter what. And that's a completely different type of population. So there's a, a lot of different populations to focus on. And I think that um, you brought up children. And it's hard to not focus on the children in these cases that um, are the innocent ones. <laughs> and they're actually impacted a lot more than, than healthy adults. I want to talk from a kind of uh, non-scientist level. Mm -hmm. um, as a former mayor of a really big city that's been out of attainment for ozone levels for many, many years and has never figured out how to get in attainment, um, I lived in Los Angeles as a college student, and I was an intern. And I remember I had a very, very old convertible, and I would drive in the San Fernando Valley to get to work in downtown LA, and I couldn't, I could barely see the car in front of me because it was so smoggy and it was so awful and the air was so polluted. And it's because of regulations and because of the EPA setting standards that LA is much, much, much cleaner today and many other cities are much, much, much cleaner. And because of the regulations and because EPA, in my opinion, as a former elected official, puts those those standards out there and those benchmarks and says, you figure out how to meet it because that's going to make the quality of life better. That's why we have live, work, play communities. That's why we have walkable neighborhoods. That's why we have public transportation. I mean, we have done so many things as a country to increase our quality of life while cleaning up the air, while cleaning up the water. And so to, as, as from a lay point of view, I understand what, you're, what you guys are saying about children versus adults and asthma, but there's a whole other bigger issue out there, which is that someone has to keep moving the benchmark out and out and out and challenging us as, a, as humans to do better to save our planet. Right. If but, I might jump in and comment on that. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the key points is, as, we, as I like to say, we need to make sure we're chasing the right rabbit. And that is we know people are still getting sick, even though ozone has come down dramatically. In fact, it looks like with this year's data, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is going to have a design value of 81, which the target's 85, below 85. So it's attaining at this point that standard. We've got another standard to get to. And so we're making progress in lowering the standard or lowering the, the measured uh, concentrations, but we're not seeing the health benefits. And, and so I, the, the point I'm making is there are trade-offs. When we focus our efforts on reducing ozone further, that takes away from our opportunity to figure out what's really happening and address those that are causing people to still have respiratory challenges. And, and one of the key, and I don't want to... Uh, 
hog the show here, but one of the key things that sort of points, I think, where we are with regard to the data is EPA's current analysis, and they're looking at the ozone standard that they're thinking about lowering now. For Houston, which is the only city they evaluated in Texas and Los Angeles, but in Houston, lowering the standard from where it is now to lower standards, they actually project will lead to greater deaths in the Houston area. Uh, between 35 and close to 50, I think, or 40, 50, somewhere in that range, additional deaths in Houston. And, and part of that is because of the, the mo- it's modeled one. I, I don't know that I believe that uh, is going to occur, but if it is, that, that's hard for the EPA to lower the standard and know that it's going to result in more deaths in the Houston area. But part of this interaction that Dr. Vanos, Vanos talked about is that we know, for example, that ozone is formed largely by VOCs and NOx, those uh, volatile organic compounds and, and oxides of nitrogen in, in presence of sunlight, they interact, and there's this very dynamic process, and there's something called NOx scavenging that happens. And so part of the, the process of reducing ozone in our large cities is primarily to reduce NOx, NOx. One of the unanticipated consequences of that is that you tend to remove the NOx from the downtown area, and so what happens is the scavenging that occurs at night where NOx interacts and reduces ozone no longer occurs, and so the models show, and you likely will have higher levels of ozone in the downtown areas and so effectively, the EPA's modeling says that the new standard being lowered will save people in the suburbs but lead to more deaths in the city. And so either, there's, either we need to really think about is that a good policy or it tells us, which I think there's probably a lot of truth to, that we've gotten to the point where the, the reductions we've made have gotten us most of, if not all, the health benefits, and now there's so much noise. We really need to think about what is going to lead to health benefits because we need to have those health benefits. We know people are getting sick and they're not getting better as we clean up the air. So when it quits working, it's time to say, we need to do the heavy lifting and figure out what we need to do to make it work. There's a, I just want to jump in. For, for those who aren't familiar in the audience, the ozone standard today is 75 parts per billion. That's correct. Of the, you know, potentially what the EPA is looking at doing is lowering that to 60. Um, very quickly, without getting too much into this sort of debate yeah, about yeah. the science of ozone, Dr. Vanessa, I just wanted, I mean, are we, are we at a point scientifically where the ozone standard should be lower, and that that might, I mean, it sounds like we're having a debate about that. That's a good question. There, there is a lot of um, evidence out there showing the impacts of ozone to health, but again, it's hard to tease that apart from the other pollutants. And one of the reasons that the model would be showing um, increases, um, you said increases? With lower ozone? Increased uh, f- uh, mm-hmm. mortality lower... in Texas. Yeah, the so only then, because we see a relationship with NO2 and NO also impacting mm-hmm. health, and it's very negative to people's health, and actually more so in the winter. And so that's why we would be seeing that relationship. So it's very difficult to tease apart that ozone threshold and know what kind of difference it would make to lower it from 75 to 60. Um, but in terms of, so the whole um, NOx disbenefit you're talking about, NO2 helps um, create ozone, but it's NO that breaks it up. Yeah, so I don't know, I don't want to get into a chemistry lesson, but he's completely right that you do see, um, as ozone goes up, the complete no, or the NO2 drops. Um, so it's, it's very interesting, and this is completely different when you're talking about an urban area versus a rural area, too. Um, and the different types of um, interactive effects that you get. Um, so I think that if, if we're talking about how can we really know what the standard should be, once again, I'm going to say the differential thresholds are needed because the entire pop- or the generally healthy population might be okay at 75, but there's a lot of sick people and young and elderly that would not be okay at that. 
And so that's, I, can't, I think, what needs to be looked at. And also, what are people actually being exposed to? Because three or four monitors in one city doesn't tell us much when it is so variable from street to street on what someone's being exposed to. And the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, just on a personal basis, I have worked on um, a smoking education. Mm. And the Asthma Association here in Texas gave me their statewide honor one year. And I had an interesting conversation with them. And I said, you know, now I'm sure everybody in this room is probably more informed than the average citizen. So, but I think if you ask the average citizen, is our air cleaner now or dirtier, they'd probably say, I'm afraid it's dirtier just because what they read, that we never seem to be able, we're chasing the bar that gets higher and higher. So the average citizen thinks that our air is actually dirtier now than it was. So I asked the, the board of the Asthma Association, I said, I'm confused. Uh, I hear that asthma is going up and up, and we actually know that our air is, air quality is greatly improved. And they said, no, you're absolutely right. I said, it's probably indoor air. We, our houses are, are tighter now. Uh, you know, our mothers used to open the house and the ventilation, it would, the air would go from front to back. And now our houses are very, very tight in order to have energy efficiency. And so it's the paint, it's the rugs, it's the indoor air. And um, I think most people don't understand that, but asthma is going up, but they don't blame the outdoor air. The other thing that we did in Denton with the smoking awareness, um, it was when people were so concerned about the, the gas wells. And when the gas well monitors came in, they were very actually low. But we, we took a chart and compared um, the, I think that was the benzene, compared the benzene um, on the gas well. It came in about here. It was higher one time when a real thing had broken and then they fixed it. So. The benzene was here, but they we had a we compared it to another study that they'd done on this was when we were still smoking in Austin, and uh, the benzene was off the chart. It, they took six or seven smoking bars in Austin, and so uh, I think just as human beings, we often worry about the wrong thing. So, um, of course. Let you jump in on this and then we'll, we'll move on. Great. Well, so let me be clear. Uh, smog hurts people. Uh, we still have a serious <laughs> air pollution problem in Texas. Absolutely, it's gotten better than it was in the 70s. Absolutely, smoking and other things can also worsen uh, human health. But uh, smog pollution, soot, mercury, carbon dioxide, all these things are having huge impacts on human health. And that's, if you follow the science, as you say, Chairman, look to what the American Lung Association says, the American Heart Association, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, all of them are calling for reducing the ozone standards, calling because the science shows that clear link between you know, human health and exposure to these you know, harmful chemicals. So we absolutely need to, to reduce the, that pollution. And we, you know, we have made progress, but there's a, a lot of work still to be done. Are you comfortable with lowering the standard even if it's going to result in more net deaths in Houston? Just because even though there's science that suggests we need to understand how to do that so we actually save people, there's, I'll give you an example, there are 12 studies that EPA has looked at in their, their science background to, to recommend lowering the standard. One of those shows an association that, sh that suggests a correlation between ozone and health impacts. The others did not. They used that one 
And if you look at the, the uh, clinical study where they're looking at this impact, they have a healthy adult, which they use as a surrogate for an asthmatic, which is fine because they've argued that they respond essentially the same. But they had this individual exercising rigorously for six hours a day exposed to this uh, level, higher level of ozone, and they got, I believe it was a 5% uh, change in the FEV, the forced air volume once. So that's what that test that you go to the respiratory doctor, you blow out to see how well your lung function is working. So a 5% change there. That's within the range that a healthy human goes through in a normal day. That's not, in fact, there are some science that suggests that you should be 10 to 15% before you would consider that a health impact. And so I'm not suggesting that we don't need to, to study this and find out what the correct level is. I'm suggesting that the data we have before us today causes me a lot of concern that we're going to be chasing the wrong rabbit. And that is that we're going to feel better that we lower the standard, but the same people are going to get sick and die. And I'm not comfortable saying I'm okay with that just because it's time to lower the standard again. This, well, people's lives are at stake. I ag- absolutely agree. Then why did you oppose the cross-state air pollution rule, which will save 1,700 lives in Texas every year? It, it, it's not. If you look at the data in the, in the cross-state air pollution rule, it was not accurate. They did not understand what was going on. And to, to the point, with regard to the cross-state air pollution rule, which states have obligations to minimize their and, and not cause another state to exceed their, their threshold. The reason that we oppose that is because EPA was including Texas without the ability to comment because the, the rule that they proposed said, we're going to take comment about including Texas. No details. What they ended up doing then is using a model, a model, and all models are wrong, some models are useful. They used a model to suggest that Texas emissions of SO2 were going to have an impact at a monitor in Granite City, Illinois, which was the other side of a steel mill, which was why their monitor was there beginning to begin with. The steel mill made changes. The monitor is now in attainment, so the problem's been fixed. So it's 1,000-plus miles away, and the, the impact of that was going to be 0.015 micrograms per cubic meter of PM2.5 that Texas was going to form. If you lived at that monitor site for a 70-year lifetime, and you breathe in Texas contribution that's modeled, which I don't agree with, but it's modeled, you would have, seven, I believe it was 70 milligrams of PMT 2.5 you'd be exposed to. If you took a packet of sweet and low, divided into 10 piles, one of those piles is what you'd be exposed to if you spent your entire life living at that monitor. And for that, they wanted Texas to have, I believe it was a 40% reduction in SO2. That's not good science. That's not good regulation. That is the reason that we oppose that, because they didn't follow their own rules, and it was going to lead to burden that was not going to lead to real health benefits. So I want to just uh, go, I think that one of, the, one of the debates that's playing out here is about the ozone, the ozone standard and the way that the EPA, you know, asks for some of these policies. It sounds like that's what you're getting at, Chairman Shaw. You know, uh, as you were all saying, the, the goals are the same, clean air, clean water. How do we get there? So, um, you know, can, Dr. Vanas, can we get to a point where we can at least say, Unclear what the ozone standard should be, but it would probably be a good thing if the ozone levels were less. Sure. Correct? I'm sure we can say that, Um, but it's very dependent on the geographical area Mm -hmm. you're talking about, and especially when we're getting into now the cross-state traveling of um, pollutants, and if we're talking about measuring a pollutant from its source, you can't do that with ozone, so it's more difficult to set a standard. If you're talking about SO2, you can. You can measure what is being emitted from that smokestack. And then it is difficult to understand the trajectory that that parcel will take to get to the next state over. That's difficult to do. But if you set up the weather schemes and the weather systems, I'm from Canada near Toronto, and now we get a lot of Pittsburgh's air pollution. And that's when we get our heavy smog days. And that's an international type thing. And I think that you can't ignore the cross-state pollution. And in the same way that we can't ignore what China is emitting. 
and that's going to impact the entire world. Um, we also can't ignore what one small state is emitting, or big state like Texas, and who it's going to impact in their health. Um, but at the same time, setting an ozone standard is extremely difficult, and the EPA has done a tremendous amount of work on doing this in different types of studies, and uh, many environmental health studies also focus really heavily on ozone because of the relationships we see with it. Um, and so in any studies that I have done, ozone does pop out as being one of the most harmful and also one of the most interactive with the other pollutants we're looking at if we're looking at EPA's criteria pollutants for health. So, Well, final word on, maybe not the final word, but Laura, <laughs> Never. I, I wanted, you know, you brought up the way that you feel about how this has been done by the EPA and the benefits of that. Um, I'm kind of curious, do you think there are things, you know, if you can expand on that? Excuse me, if you can expand yeah. on that a little bit. Well, and one thing I do want to say, you know, we, <coughs> the whole conversation so far has been on what standards are being set and are they good or are they bad and are they, do they have consequences? But the other side of that coin is I think it would make your job especially a lot easier as head of the TCEQ, which gives permits to industrial facilities, if industry, and, you know, I used to be an elected official, I used to be an investigative reporter. Now, I, I fought dirty coal plants as mayor of Dallas all over the state of Texas with Bill White from Houston. And that led me to my current job, which sounds really bizarre, but I am building a coal gasification power plant in Odessa, Texas, that captures 90% of its carbon and has, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think we have the lowest emissions of, of any... Um, coal plant ever permitted in the state of Texas. I mean, we are very, very, very low emissions. And that's exactly. not including the CO2, because right. I know that that's not part and of the Texas And this would come permit. online in 2018? 18, yeah. yeah. But I think it would make your job so much easier if industry puts a burden on itself to, to create a better mousetrap and to build... You know, I, I heard an electricity panel this morning, and they talked about the grid and the state of the grid. And the head of CPS Energy in San Antonio, which is the largest municipally owned um, elect electrical company in the, in the country, and he owns power plants. And he said, listen, it has been inevitable for a long time that we are going to have to do something about CO2. It's just a fact. And so whether you're in Texas or whether you're in California, and there's very different understandings of that in those two, sta in those two states, they're going to, you're, it's inevitable, it's going to happen, and if you're a smart company, you're going to do something about it. And so they sold a dirty coal plant, they bought a cleaner gas plant, they're doing a big solar project, they are partnering with, with us, and, and we are selling all of our electricity, which is very low carbon because we capture 90% of the carbon, to the city of San Antonio on a long-term basis. And he said they're going to be winners in this game and they're going to be losers. Mm -hmm. And so it's the companies like his that say this is going to happen and we're going to do it now. They're going to be winners. And the ones that don't do it, like TXU Energy, which tried to do 11 coal plants all at one time, all old technology, no carbon capture, they're not going to be winners. And so I think it makes your job easier if industry takes some of the responsibility and gives you the highest and most efficient and cleanest possible facilities so that you've got a standard to compare all the other permits against. And we do have some of the, it, we're making progress. We have some of the cleanest uh, coal fleet in the country, and it could get better. And I think that there's, the, the industry buy-in is, is critical, and our requiring industry to be a part of the solution is critical. And I think the, the challenge is that when you, when you ask people to make sacrifices and to, and to come along and be part and partner with solving a problem, you need to make sure that you have 
all your science laid out beforehand. And the way I like to say it is I need to be able to have conversations across the table from the public, from the regulated community, and from the environmental community. And they need to come away with that having assurances that there's a reasonable expectation that those regulations are going to lead to the environmental benefit, I tell them it is, and that we've tried to do our homework so that we avoid the unintended consequences. And that's, it sounds easy, and it, and it, but it's very difficult. And especially when you start looking at this process where you have these ever-moving targets from EPA, it makes it difficult to get companies to be proactive because they don't know when to pull the trigger. For example, right now we have the new carbon capture, the, the 111D rule, which would be for existing coal-fired power plants, existing coal and natural gas. We have this, this process in place, and EPA is projecting certain power plants to close their doors. Some of those, by the way, that are going to be closing down based on these projections are some of the cleaner plants we have because they put in scrubbers, which are a parasitic load, which make, means that they clean up some pollutants of concern, but then they emit more CO2 per megawatt down the wires. So that's a, a little bit of a strange, unexpected twist, perhaps, for EPA. But you have these, these coal plants that are now at the situation of saying, do I put on controls to comply with the mercury and air toxic standard? Do I put on these other controls so that I can control and, and be able to, to continue operating until EPA tells me to close down, or do I close down now? Because 2020, we're supposed to start seeing reductions in CO2, and so we have a real issue about the grid and what, about the grid reliability because some of those plants may shut down sooner because why spend additional millions of dollars to try to comply with a rule now that you know you're not going to be able to recoup that investment. And so I think the reason I point this out is I think EPA's approach that's been such a, a top-down mandate has missed a real opportunity because with regard to this standard, if EPA had followed what I think the statutes require, that states have ultimate flexibility in this, if they had set the standard based on the inside defense, which is sort of the energy efficiency improvements that can be made. By the way, Texas has been very good at that with our energy-only competitive market. Anything that's cost-effective has already been done unless regulations keep it from being done. So we have, if they had to set those standards and then said, go out and do the creative things with energy efficiency, do the things that, uh, that you can do to, to reduce your uh, emissions and to do it more efficiently, we would be able to drive reduction of greenhouse gases in order to improve efficiency. Because I've always asserted that just deciding that you're going to say, we're going to quit burning coal and eventually natural gas in the United States so that we can reduce greenhouse gases is, is a bad policy. Because we're, the coal's not going to not be burned. If we don't burn it here, it's going to go to China or India. It's like a balloon. If we squish in one spot, it's going to bulge out somewhere else. If instead of saying, we're not going to burn the coal, we're going to send it over to China and pretend it's not going anywhere, if instead we'd say, let's incentivize cleaner use of the energy we have now, incentivize new technology where companies get, uh, can streamline the permitting process for energy efficiency, for putting, bringing new energy to, to market, imagine how that would be that we use our natural resources to spur the next level of energy and energy efficiency so that we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We also reduce our other pollutants of concern that have a, a very real and very acute environmental and health impact, and we do it in a way that becomes more cost-effective so that China and India, if they want to remain competitive, have to adopt those new technologies because we're doing it bigger, better, faster, cheaper. And, and I think we'd have a much different result than suggesting somehow we're going to pat ourselves on the back and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the, in the U.S. by 30%, which is going to be less than you know, three sheets of paper change in sea level based on the models, and yet we've missed this huge opportunity to really change the paradigm where we could incentivize energy efficiency, which would help everything, better competitiveness, better reduction of other emissions, and reducing greenhouse gases, I think, more than, than just a top-down cap. We haven't... So before everyone else jumps in, apologies, we've moved on now from talking <laughs> about 
ozone and those, that. you know, and, and, and the, those types of air pollution standards to the much less controversial issue of carbon emissions and climate change. Um, and, um, it was a joke, I think. Of course, what Chairman Shaw was talking about with the 111 e rule, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the recently proposed Obama administration uh, rule, the EPA rule, to reduce carbon emissions from existing power plants. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. Luke, I know you have something that you want to say, but let's, let's talk about what we think the impacts of that could be on Texas, if, if there's a way to, to follow this rule, or if there's a way to work with the EPA on making it better. Sure. There's absolutely a, a way to work with the EPA, and that's to work with them. Uh, it's really as simple as that. You know, what we've done to date has just been you know, lawsuit after lawsuit. I think we're at something like 19 lawsuits against the EPA thus far. We've m lost most of them. You know, the Astros have lost most of their games this season, and they're still doing better than Texas is doing in suing the EPA. Um, and it's just been counterproductive. Um, you know, the, I think a great example has been the, you know, the greenhouse gas permitting uh, rule. The EPA in 2010 ordered all the states to start issuing greenhouse gas permits. Every state in the country did that, except for Texas. And as a result, uh, EPA had to step in and, and do the TCEQ's job for them, issue the permits, even though they didn't have the staff to be able to do it. So there ended up being delays in issuing the permits, which cost businesses. Uh, businesses started talking about having to move facilities to other states because they couldn't get their permits on time. Ultimately, the business community had to go to the legislature to get them to order TCEQ to do their job and issue these permits. So uh, it's been counterproductive. Um, it's hurting people because you know, we know that global warming uh, poses, uh, is already causing serious problems for Texas in terms of the drought, the historic drought we faced mm -hmm. in 2011, the wildfires, the heat, you know, flooding like we've faced recently here in Austin. All those have huge impacts to us, but if we actually worked with the EPA, we could come up with, you know, there is enormous flexibility in the plan that allows the states to, you know, uh, go to their own advantages, and we've got plenty of them, like wind and solar power. Already the projections are that we're going to hit 20% by 2030 without the clean power plan. Um, so we could actually, if we, you know, put our minds to it, uh, produce more energy and sell it to other states, start making lots of money off of the clean energy that we could export to other states. But if we keep, you know, uh, keeping our heads in the sand and, and fighting this, we're going to get left behind. EPA is going to have to write the plan for us, and there won't be that flexibility. Well, Representative Cronover, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, especially in the, in the greenhouse... Uh, in the greenhouse gas permitting issue, you know, mm -hmm. as, as someone who's on the Energy Commission, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, committee, I'm wondering if you, if you heard from, uh, you know, utilities on that rule, do you think there's anything Texas could have done better in the handling of, of the opposition to that particular climate rule that the EPA had? Well, I came up, I was thinking about, is it the EPA versus Texas? And um, I think Texans are pretty good about wanting common sense answers. And they want things that work. Um, I hope that we will all stay away from ideology. I just like things that work. I like things that work a lot better than things that don't work. And I'm concerned about an overreach. And so I think we need to have a real um, partnership there uh, in the Energy Resources um, uh, Committee. We always try very hard to not make winners and losers. Um, you want to let the market decide. I know. I, wrote, I was with the Southern States Energy Board and wrote the energy um, security thing back in 2006, and it was based on all the things that we needed to do to become energy independent. And at that time, we were spending $700 billion buying energy from uh, people that didn't share our values. That made no sense. So at that time, we decided that we needed to use all I mean, there was conservation being the first one, 
But I, th I think the thing that we, we forget, and, and we are lucky, we are blessed, we are uh, maybe even coddled. Uh, the three E's of energy are, first of all, having the energy available, and then um, the environmental, and then the economy. So we are so blessed on having, knowing that we could go to the gas pump and fill up our car, knowing that we can turn on our light switch, knowing that we can have our air conditioner run at whatever temperature we... So we're taking that one for granted, and so now we're working on the environmental part and the cost part. But those two need to go. We can't just do the environmental without the cost. Uh, we can't just do the cost without the environmental. So those two are tied, and, and that's what I think uh, maybe the EPA could stand a little reality factor in there on what it costs to do these things. I know the 111 possibly would cause us to create uh, three new CRES lines. Well, I was in the legislature when we created the first CRES line. Its cost was supposed to be $5 billion. came in at $7 billion. And that $7 billion goes on the backs of ratepayers. In Resident the state of Texas, lines for yeah. yeah, and it's also it's not like anybody wants a power line in their backyard. So there have been years and years and years of trouble about that. So you know, it's fun to to think of how wonderful solar is and how one wonderful wind is. I come from West Texas, where there's cotton fields and windmills everywhere, but uh, the transportation costs are tremendous, and they impact somebody's life also. So it's that we want to keep the balance, we want to keep the conversation open and respectful without ideology blocking the way. Can, well, I, can I yes. maybe clarify a few things? It, you know, Mr. Metzger characterized our, you know, all we do is sue EPA kind of uh, a simplification of the process. First of all, Environmental groups sue EPA as much or more than we do. And second of all, my job as the chairman of the TCQ is not to just rubber stamp whatever EPA wants to do. My, my job is to look out for the interest of Texas and to make sure that just as EPA holds us accountable with regard to the programs that require federal authorization, we have a responsibility and a right to question when EPA moves forward with approaches that we don't agree with, that we don't think are legal, that we don't think are technically correct. And, and for example, with regard to the, the greenhouse gas lawsuit that many say was a loss, one of the key issues that I argued with EPA on and talked at, at length that, that they would actually meet with us was that their use of the tailoring rule to say that even though the Congress set standards or thresholds of 100 tons per year and 250 tons per year as thresholds for requiring certain permits, EPA wanted to ignore those and set their own. And the courts blatantly or boldly told EPA that that was not their purview to rewrite that. And interestingly enough, one of the first conversations I had with some high-level staff of EPA after we wrote a letter saying we were not going to support EPA in, in doing that process of, of regulating uh, greenhouse gases based on the, the rules that they laid out without opportunity for discussion. They were very adamant. They basically wanted us to agree to regulate, as they said, without even telling us what that would look like yet. And in our response, we pointed out, amongst other things, that we didn't agree that they had the authority to change that threshold. And they were extremely surprised that I took issue 
with, the, with them changing, the, using the absurd results doctrine, they said, where they ignored what Congress said and said they were going to raise the standard. They were surprised that I took issue with that because it would be better for me if it was raised. And it points out what has been historically a real problem is that EPA has not been focused on the rule of law and what the statutes and the regulations require, what the authority they have, but instead, what do we want? And, and that's not my job to get what I want. My job is to make sure I follow state law, that I follow the federal regulations, and that I make sure that their rules and regulations have Texas interest in mind and follow their rules. If they present a rule that is going to blatantly ignore statute, even though it may be preferential for my view of how best to regulate Texas, I have to stand up and say, no, that's not legal. And that's, that's an issue that, that is, is critical. Furthermore, the, the, the Texas legislature didn't pass legislation to force TCEQ to, to, to uh, issue greenhouse gas bills. They crafted a bill that authorized TCEQ to issue greenhouse gas regulations. And they were very explicit, so long as there are federal requirements requiring those permits to be had. Essentially, if the federal authority goes away, our authority to issue those permits go away. So this was far from the legislature slapping TCEQ and saying, you need to go permit those. It gave us the authority that we didn't believe we had at that point. And with regard to lawsuits, it's not about keeping score on lawsuits. It's a matter of making certain that we protect our interests. I would much rather sit down with EPA and discuss it. It's getting better at this point with our regional office, but prior to the current regional administrator, we were at the point where we weren't able to have meetings. They wouldn't take meetings with me. They would not have conversations. They would not discuss important rules. And in the cross-state rule we talked about earlier, a key component, they would not meet with us. I tried to meet with the administrator. I tried to meet with regional staff. No one would take a meeting. And the result of that is they crafted a rule that assumed that it would not have impacts on our regulatory, or excuse me, our electrical reliability. But that's partially because they assumed we had 90,000 megawatts of generating capacity across the state, when in actuality we had 72,000. That's a, that's a huge issue that a simple discussion would have been able to fix. I'm happy to say that whenever I heard that Ron Curry was appointed the regional administrator, I called him up immediately and said, I hope that we can communicate better, that we aren't communicating through press releases, which seemed to be the previous administration's uh, choice of how to communicate with us. And to his credit, he has been very, uh, very great about that. He calls me before he makes major decisions. We had that communication happening, at least at the regional level. And so I'm hopeful we can avoid the major kind of uh, missteps that EPA has been engaged in, in the past. But we take that responsibility very seriously that we have an obligation to look out for the state's interest, not to blindly follow what, whatever EPA, especially when they have rules that are clearly uh, have a disparate impact on different states because they've not followed the, the rules in place. But Chairman Shaw, the TCEQ has sued the EPA over the Clean Air Act more than you've sued the polluters who violate the Clean Air Act. We enforce on the on the no, on the violators whenever they violate well, right. that. We violate. We, we enforce those. We've sued. And if they don't come into compliance, if they purposely uh, fail to uh, com come in compliance, we can turn them over to the Attorney General's office so they can face criminal. But you're not doing that. Oh, we, yes, we do. We've, yes, had to, we do. we've had to sue ourselves. You know, a nonprofit group with, Envi with Sierra Club sued Shell and Chevron Phillips and now Exxon. We were able to get 90% reductions. We got them to pay a $7.8 million fine, money that went back into the community to build a children's health clinic. Now, that's you know, more money than you, you've gotten in 20 agreed orders, 100 agreed orders, of, you know, small little chump change fines that you're assessing against people violating the law, endangering human health. And these are all self-reported violations on your website. If you actually, if imagine if an agency, you know, if, if just a small nonprofit group can do that, if you put your mind to it, all the resources of the TCQ, we could have much better compliance of the law. You said you're standing up for Texans' interests. I think you're standing up for big polluters' interests, not for human health and, and Texans. <laughs>
think you see, I think you see a fundamental difference in what you view as a successful enforcement policy. You've talked about enforcement and you're counting dollars. My goal and what I try to emphasize to our staff, our enforcement staff, is the goal of enforcement is compliance. The goal of enforcement is compliance. And so we work very effectively and we continue to reevaluate and make changes to our policy and we work with the legislature as well. And we have a policy in a situation that works very well to, I think, bring uh, companies into compliance. We have a great track record and it's getting better. And we're seeing the environmental benefits that show that, that prove that out. And so it's not about our goal, our responsibility is not to go out and extract as much money and punitive costs as we can. Our goal is to go out and make sure that we have policies in place that will lead to compliance, and I think they're very functional at that. I don't think you're getting that. Well, I've got a couple of very quick questions before opening up to the audience. We just have a couple more minutes here. And Laura, I wanted to actually ask you, you're working on the business side of this, you know, um, especially regarding the clean power plan, you know, the proposal to reduce carbon emissions from existing power plants. Do you think that can work in some way for Texas? Maybe not the way that the EPA has currently, and it's just a proposal so far, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are of the plan and, and whether it's really workable. Well, you know, in 2006 when I was fighting TXU's coal plants, carbon capture wasn't even really thought to be possible. I mean, it, we were all talking about carbon capture ready, which meant nothing, really. It just sounded good. Um, so we, the whole country has come such a long way. And, what, and what's shocking to people outside Texas is that right now it's Texas that has the two most cutting-edge um, carbon capture for enhanced oil recovery projects in the whole country. One was broken ground on last week near Houston. NRG took the Parrish plant, which is the number six largest CO2 emitter in the country for a coal plant. It's a giant project. And they said, we're going to start capturing carbon off this monstrous plant. And, they, and they're putting a lot of money and time and energy into um, putting a tower on top of the coal plant to, to take a slipstream of CO2 off of it. And it is the most exciting project in the country right now for taking CO2 off an existing coal plant. And then you have our project, which is across the state in Odessa, which will be a new build, not an old coal plant, a new coal plant with gasification and carbon capture. Um, so, so Texas, you know, I think the good news for, at the end of all this, because I want people to leave feeling good, um, and I'm glad I sat between these two guys. <laughs> Helped a lot. Um, but the good news, and this was the theme of the panel this morning, okay, was, yeah, uh, this is going to be a tough thing to do. If EPA goes ahead and actually gets this through and the courts uphold it, it's going to be tough. But Texas is perhaps better poised in the entire country to succeed in meeting the goals because of everything that the legislature, the governor, the TCEQ, the environmental groups, industry. I mean, we've got an incredible amount of natural gas coming up. We have got carbon capture projects that are being looked at internationally by everybody. We've got, we're number one in wind by far. We're more than double with California and Iowa, which are the next two after us. I mean, everything. We've got more solar coming online, um, a big emphasis on energy efficiency, and that'll continue in next session. So we have the ability to actually meet those goals. Um, yeah, I think you're going to see some old coal plants stop making electricity um, 40 years after they were built. That's not a bad thing because um, there are newer, better technologies now, and they should be 
they should be taken offline and newer stuff should be brought online. And I think Texas is going to be fine. I think it's a great state. I think there's a lot of noise, but when you look at it, what's actually happening, what's actually being put on the ground, I think that we can meet those standards. Well, uh, perfect opportunity for the audience to come and ask some questions. Please, uh, there are two microphones on either side of the room there. Uh, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, Andrew Dobbs of Texas Campaign for the Environment. Uh, one issue that has not come up at all yet uh, in this discussion has to do with contested case hearings. In 2011, there was a legislative attempt uh, to basically, uh, as we understand it, significantly undermine the contested case hearing process at TCEQ. Um, and it kind of stopped when there were worries that EPA would pull the air permitting from TCEQ if that were to happen. Another legislative attempt in 2013 didn't really go anywhere. The, this next session, the State Office of Administrative Hearings is up for sunset review. And there's a lot of us that are concerned that there's going to be another attempt to try and undermine or undo the contested case hearing process for reviewing pollution permits at TCEQ. Um, will the chairman and, and uh, Representative Conover, we all commit to preserving the con current uh, contested case hearing process? And uh, what and other folks, if they have insight on this too, I'd be interested in hearing what you all have to say. Let me first say I don't and cannot lobby, and so I will not be uh, working to preserve, prevent, to change uh, in that regard. That, that's something that would be the purview of the, of the legislature. For those of you who aren't familiar, contested case hearings are basically a way of, of, of protesting a decision. And, you know. and just put in context, EPA, the, the federal requirements are that you have a notice and comment. That is, that you have a, a permit that goes to the agency. The agency uh, goes through the, a couple of notices uh, to the public where they can add comment to that. And then the, the agency would evaluate whether or not the, the permit is protective. This is what EPA does, by the way, is protective. And then they consider those comments and to make changes if they want to. And if not, they explain why they don't, and then they issue the permit. In the state of Texas, we have an opportunity during that process for uh, interested as, uh, parties, for affected parties, to request a hearing where it goes basically to a court. We uh, send those over to the administrative law judges at the state office of administrative hearings, and they basically collect the data and look at to ensure from that input that the permit in our, our analysis as well as the, any data that's brought forward shows that it would be protective and meet the, the requirements. That process is what's being talked about, that contested case, where it provides in certain cases an additional opportunity for citizens to contest a case. So Representative Cranover, I don't know if you, if you have thoughts on this or your colleagues. Um, certainly will be an interesting issue. Right, and we just went through that conversation with the sunset on the Railroad Commission. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of talk on whether we should use SOA there. And, um, I, you know, it is expensive. It's a time-consuming process. So they did not add that with the Railroad Commission. And we will look at see what the Sunset Commission recommends. Okay, so right now it's, a, it's, it's an opportunity for the TCQ, but not, mm -hmm. with, the, not with decisions for the Railroad Commission. Okay. Any other? Well, I'm happy to ask my own questions. I've got, we have a few more um, minutes. Well, if I could just add also on the contested case hearing process briefly that, you know, I think it's a critical program. Um, uh, Andrew, you're right that it, it's under attack. You know, big polluters hate it um, because it means that they have to negotiate with citizens um, that live nearby the polluting facility that they're going to put out. And, you know, uh, that process has been enormously uh, effective in helping, you know, community members be able to negotiate and, and get some pollution controls um, and, you know, reasonable ones. Um, and we absolutely need to preserve it. When we, um, when I was mayor and Bill White 
and I put together this coalition of 30 school districts, counties, and cities, and we said we are against these 11 proposed coal plants. When you consider that we have around 18 now, to put on 11 more all at one time would have just been really scary. So we went out into all the communities around those projects and got standing. We asked the city councils in those towns to, have, to join us so that we would have standing to be able to go to these contested case hearings and present all the evidence on why what they were proposing, in our opinion, wasn't the best available technology that existed in the world for coal plants. Because remember, if you get a permit and you build a coal plant, that thing's going to run for 30 or 40 years. It's a long, long, long time. And so if you get rid of that process where the citizens can come in and make a case for why better technology exists elsewhere than what's being proposed, I, I can't even imagine what would happen to the permitting process in Texas. It would just not be a fair system, in my, in my opinion, having, having would, been through it. To, to be clear, it would be the federal system is what the difference would be, because that is the federal system. There is no, uh, no opportunity for a contested case hearing in the federal system, and, many, and there are other states who have that as well. It is a huge difference. I I'm I'm just want to make sure that people understand it's not, it's not, a, it's not a system that's not out there. Uh, it is a lot different, and there's a lot that you give up if you, if you do one versus the other. So. so in this case, you want the federal government to decide what Texas gets instead of states? You, you missed my first part. I said I'm not advocating on this. Yeah. I'm just clearly pointing out that there are, that this, this program <laughs> is exactly what EPA does. Right. So. All right, next question. All right. I'm Melanie Scruggs with Texas Campaign for the Environment. And Laura Miller, I'm a little concerned about gasification being promoted as a form of like more renewable type of energy production from coal. I've heard of some gasification plants mixing in other materials like trash. And as you may know, that would severely undercut things like recycling out in West Texas. So are you going to make sure that uh, things like trash do not go into this plant? And how are you going to ensure that emissions like dioxins and other kinds of things don't get emitted from that thing? Well, there are two uh, gasification projects in America that make power. One is in Florida and one's in Indiana, and they were both built by the federal government in the mid-90s, and they both use either coal or pet coke. Um, we are designing a project that only uses coal from the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. Um, you can't put anything else in it because then it would make a gas that wouldn't work in the combustion turbine that wouldn't make electricity. So in all of our permitting, we had to say what our fuel stock was and how we were doing it and how it was being designed. The reason gasification is so much better than a regular pulverized coal plant is because you don't burn the coal. So you put the coal, instead of burning it with a match and then everything going up the stack, and then you're trying to pull out all the bad stuff while, as it's going up the stack, which is very inefficient. Gasification is where you put, you crunch up the coal and you put it in a huge vessel, a gasifier, with a little bit of oxygen. You take it to 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit and it vaporizes into a gas. And then you're able to strip off all the bad stuff in a gaseous form that's much easier. And you, you take all the sulfur, the SO2, the acid rain, and while it's in a gaseous state, you send it to another facility on your project and you make sulfur, sulfuric acid, and then that's used for fertilizing for the farmers. So it's a very controlled way of using coal and stripping out all the impurities in a much, much more efficient way. And it makes it extremely easy to shift the CO2, the carbon dioxide, off the gas. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, you, you, can't, you can't take the CO2 off the plant as, it's, as, the, as the 
as all the junk is going up the smokestack, which is why they're tr still trying to figure out how to do that on existing coal plants, which is why the project in Houston is so important to try to figure out a way to do that on existing coal. We have time very, very quickly for the last question. Uh, going back to the 111D rules and how Texas might go about complying, um, my understanding of that regulation is that it gives the state a great deal of leeway about methods. We can essentially choose to do what we might want to. And in the earlier energy session, I had inquired about uh, Texas leveraging its experience with its own energy market and its successes in terms of just pricing carbon emission. So I would argue and presume that that might actually reward your facility, Laura, for having reduced relative emissions. So you'd actually have an economic, you know, additional economic reward for uh, the actions you're taking. And I'm just wondering what are the barriers and what, uh, what other methods, if we weren't going to do something like that, what would be the preferred method to comply with the 111D rules, given that Texas can do what it wants? Uh, there is a great deal of, of flexibility that's been talked about. There's still a lot of uncertainty about what that looks like and how you actually go about making sure that it meets all the federal requirements of enforceability and permanence and what have you, especially with energy efficiency measures. Uh, I'll address your component. You're, you're talking about the dispatching of electricity, which is a couple of the building blocks that, that they gave flexibility with, but then they also added additional reductions because they gave you the flexibility. A longer story than I have time for. But uh, what, what the, one of the challenges is our current uh, system we have in place with an energy-only competitive market is we dispatch electric generation based on lease cost. And this would sort of turn that upside down where you would dispatch based on least carbon emissions. And that's what building blocks two and three do is they, you dispatch lower emitting natural gas before you dispatch coal and you dispatch lower CO2 emitting nuclear and wind and solar before natural gas which the challenge is that's, that's not what our energy market is set up. And so you, you could use that system to change the targets instead of basing it on price you could base it on carbon. Uh, but that's then going to change the cost side of that. And so that's part of the, there's a lot of who gets credit, how you comply, how you document that, but also it, it, it's naturally going to increase the cost of electricity because with the competitive market that we have, if you could produce energy cheaper doing something different, the market should be driving it that way, and it has, and it does respond. Sometimes it's not as fast as you want it to be, but it does drive that. And so it, it, it's sort of, if you will, the reason that, EPA suggests, the best I can tell, that we're going to have lower cost electricity with this rule is because the only thing that's been missing is having the federal government be involved in trying to make something more efficient. And so once the federal government, that's a joke for those of you who are asleep, once the federal <laughs> government gets involved, and that's my biggest concern, is not that there's not some good ideas and some things that we're already doing, but that you're going to have this federal bureaucracy that's going to oversee that and it's going to require that everything be documented, reported, enforceable, federally enforceable is a huge deal, and then you have issues about who gets credit for what. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of unknowns associated with that, and that's why I've started off with my earlier comments saying EPA, I think, really missed an opportunity if they had really opened up for us to be able to utilize that flexibility that, that is available to us, but without the additional penalty of, of saying you're going to have to get all these extra reductions to, to be able to use that flexibility, I think you would have seen that spur opportunities to do some of it, to get some things in the door that would incentivize a more efficient operation going down the road. And instead now you have this system where it's so caught up in this federal enforceability component that it's going to be real difficult. In fact, some states, you may have heard of Reggie, it's the... Uh, 
regional, regional gas, for. Regional. Regional greenhouse gas initiative. It's, it's basically the New England, several New England states where they trade greenhouse gases, and it's worked for them in order to do that work fairly well. But there's some concern now, surprisingly, that the 111D rule may not work within the Reggie framework because of some of these issues that I think weren't thought out well before the rule was, was uh, proposed. Hopefully they can fix some of that before the rule goes final. Well, we are uh, out of time. Thank you all so much. Thank you to our panelists for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you.